0: Radioactive contamination is forever. While the nuclear industry has flogged its PR propaganda talking points to convince the public that nuclear is somehow clean, let alone carbon-free or the solution to climate change, that doesn't take into account the full nuclear fuel chain and all of its impacts, starting with the devastation of uranium mining. So when you meet someone who has grown up between two unremediated uranium mines, less than a mile away from the site of a 1979 radioactive uranium tailings dam breach, and she tells you... We've had some people pass
1: away from cancers, respiratory illnesses, pulmonary fibrosis, COPD... So basically these people who have passed away from respiratory illnesses, we had to watch them suffocate to death. It's almost a norm here because of the radiation and the impact that the dust and the water and the land has done to our bodies, done to our community.
0: And that's just the start. When you hear something like that, from someone on the ground who has lived and is still living the nightmare, and the land and water have still not been cleaned up properly, you know that not only they, but you, are stuck in that radioactive seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what
2: are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have
3: those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear
1: Hot Seat. It's the bomb.
0: Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevy. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, July 16, marks two deadly anniversaries in atomic and nuclear history that both happened in New Mexico. The first test of an atomic weapon the Trinity test near Alamogordo in 1945, and the Church Rock uranium tailing spill on Navajo Nation land in 1979. We will focus on the Trinity atomic bomb explosion and its after-effects for next week's program. For now, a special encore presentation of last year's 40th anniversary of the Church Rock uranium tailing spill on Navajo Nation land, the release of 94 million gallons of highly acidic, radioactive uranium mining waste into the Perco River. It contaminated water and land for more than 80 miles downstream and has yet to be cleaned up. We'll hear from a miner who was on the job the day the tailings dam ruptured. Elders who lived between unremediated uranium mines and next to the site of the spill Activist fighting for complete cleanup. A solemn commemoration that included spiritual ceremony and visitors from as far away as Japan, offering support and solidarity to the Navajo people. Even representatives from the Environmental Protection Agency, a state senator, and the president of Navajo Nation. Today is Tuesday, July 14, 2020, and here is a special encore presentation of the 2019 40th anniversary of the Church Rock uranium tailing spill and contamination of land on Navajo Nation. First, some background. At United Nuclear Corporation's uranium mill in Church Rock, New Mexico, on the morning of July 16, 1979, a 20-foot section of the earthen dam at the uranium tailing's waste pool collapsed it released more than 94 million gallons of highly acidic water that contained 1,100 tons of radioactive uranium waste material. The fluid waste flowed into the adjacent Perko River, traveling 80 miles downstream past Sanders, Arizona, leaving a trail of radioactive contamination that has, to date, not been cleaned up. It remains the largest single release of radioactive material in U.S. history. Nuclear Hot Seat journeyed to Church Rock for Uranium Legacy Remembrance and Action Day, the 40th anniversary commemoration of that uranium tailings pond breach and disaster. The goal was to learn more about what happened during that time and what is happening now to clean it up. But we also learned about the ravages of uranium mining throughout Navajo Nation, where more than 500 unremediated uranium mines continue to contaminate the land, water, air, and people. I conducted several interviews in the days before the commemoration events. I first spoke with Larry J. King. As a young man, He worked as a miner taking weekly measurements of how much uranium had been taken out of the UNC mine by workers as they were paid by the footage they produced. Larry King and I first talked about the lax safety requirements at the UNC mine. What did the company tell you about the danger of being around uranium and any kind of safety practices that you should follow?
4: Nothing. There was absolutely no forewarnings of what could come, how your health could be affected by being exposed to uranium, nothing. The only time we had any kind of safety training was at the beginning of the employment. Just told us these are your safety apparatus, your safety boots, your slickers, more like a raincoat and pants. And your safety helmets with the underground lamp, gloves. That was it. So the only thing that I had to wear every day was the safety boots and the hard hat and the lamp, nothing else. Just about everybody was like that because it wasn't mandatory. They didn't stress that you got to wear this all the time. Respirators, nope, it was not.
0: Were there any radiation monitors around or Geiger counters?
4: They had a little object that they stuck inside our helmets, a dosimeter and... All I remember is it was placed in there, and I don't ever recall being called in to get the recording or get it scanned. Nothing. And we were not told how much exposures we had. Nothing. Nothing at all.
0: We then discussed the tailings pond and the early warning that was not heeded, that something was terribly wrong.
4: We drove over to the mail site, to the dam where the tailings dam were, And on the southern end of the Tailings Pond, I saw a lot of people there walking back and forth. We drove up to where they were, and right away I noticed uh, large cracks in the Tailings Dam, large enough to put your hand in there, but you can't see the bottom of it. It just went down. It was black, so I couldn't see the bottom. There were several of them. I just wandered around there, and my supervisor was at a distance talking to other mining officials. I'm sure they were the top brass for the company. I don't know if they were also from the New Mexico Environment Department. I don't know. But they were there for a long time. I don't know what their conversation was. Then after that, we just got back in the vehicle. We just drove back to the mine site. The dam was still holding.
0: So UNC knew that they had a problem and did nothing about it. At some point after that, Larry was not certain if it was days or as much as two weeks. Everything changed.
4: It wasn't until after eight o'clock, I don't know, about nine o'clock, by the time all the uh, personnel had switched over from the graveyard shift to the day shift. That's when I started hearing people talking among themselves that, did you see the dam, did you see the dam? So I didn't know what they were talking about. Eventually, I heard that the dam had broke. There was a huge gap in the dam. So when I got off after 2 o'clock and I was headed home and I look in that direction, and it's the exact same spot where i seen those huge cracks days before.
0: Did they tell you anything about it?
4: No. Nobody told us anything. I didn't really pay attention to what was going on at that time because, I don't know if the, the word is naive, I was a young kid at the time, just 23 years old, so I didn't really pay attention at all. I should have, but I didn't.
0: However... Larry did have insights into how UNC got away with their unsafe practices. In the days that followed, was there any change in the way the company acted or the way they treated the miners, or was there any kind of testing?
4: No, it was just uh, business as usual every day. I know there were safety policies in place because OSHA was there at the time. Every so often, the OSHA inspectors come in. And the way we knew it was days prior to them coming in, that's when they started barricading tunnels where they were not active to close off the radiation. Vent bags with fans were extended up to about 20 feet to where the miners are working. So they fixed up everything.
0: They were staging it.
4: Yeah, they were staging it to make it look like the mine was in compliance with OSHA policies. And so we knew the inspectors were coming in. And sure enough, the next day, they'd be wandering around. And I'm sure the mine got a passing grade. And within days, all those barricades that were put up, they came down.
0: Larry J. King. People in the local community heard about the dam break and spill, but had no idea what it meant to them. Jackie Bell lives in Redwater Pond Road community and is a member of their Community Association's Executive Committee. In her own words, she was just a kid when the Tailings Pond Dam spilled into the Perco River.
5: The first time I heard about it is from my mom that the dam broke. At that time, we, we were clueless. We didn't know the uranium was that toxic. At that time, we don't know how dangerous it is. We saw these people running around trying to clean up the spill, trying to cover it where it came out with bulldozer, putting sand there. A week later, we noticed workers dressed up in white all the way down the
0: river. Those were mine cleanup workers in full hazmat. But neither Jackie's mother nor anyone else in the Redwater Pond Road community were given any warning of how serious the problem actually was.
5: We didn't evacuate. They didn't tell us to evacuate. They didn't say anything to us.
0: Jackie Bell of Redwater Pond Road Community. Edith Hood grew up in the Redwater Pond Road Community, land which eventually had her living between two uranium mines and just down the road from the 1979 pond spill. She worked at a different mine than the u n c facility that had the accident, but faced many of the same dangers.
2: I didn't know about it till about two days later it had happened. I
0: heard reports that
2: there's already the dam breach happening, but nobody did anything about it. I don't think anybody had an idea what to do or how it would affect people maybe down the way. Especially for us, you know, never, even me, having to work in the mines, did I ever hear the word unsafe. Something's going to happen to you, especially, you know, physically, your body.
0: She didn't learn about the dangers until more than 20 years after the spill.
2: Probably in 2003, the mines had been closed for like 20 years. And I guess most of our talking was about the mine sites, where they were left as is, not fenced in, not covered, no signs, nothing.
0: When the first testing was done around Redwater Pond Road community, the results were shocking. What did they find?
2: Hot spots, this is along the highway. And then somewhere they got into the ditches as they kept going up through here, up into our little arroyo that is right in the center of the community. They showed hot spots, very hot. They never said it was unsafe. Everything's clean. And they left after that time. That's when I was diagnosed with lymphoma.
0: Edith Hood. Teresita Kayana has lived her entire life in the Redwater Pond Road community. She was not even born when the Church Rock uranium spill happened but that did not stop her exposure to uranium mining waste by what was deposited by the spill and the two surrounding mines. I asked her what she had been told about the accident while growing up.
1: Nothing. I wasn't aware of it. I didn't know much about it. As a child, I played in these abandoned uranium mills and mining areas, and my grandmother owned sheep, so... Sometimes I had to herd the sheep or get the sheep when they got onto the mining areas, the milling areas, and there was no fencing up. And so I just walked right in, got our sheep, came back through, got them back at home. Nobody ever said, you don't go in these areas, that's dangerous, nothing like that.
0: The first visible signs of impact from the spill came from the livestock.
1: A sheep that had been butchered years ago, and the entire insides, the internal organs, all are tinted yellowish, and that's due to the radiation. The
0: problems continue to this day.
1: PA, they won't allow us to plant crops because we can't eat them, we can't keep our livestock. The reason why we have our livestock is because we utilize them as an economic way and also a cultural way. We don't just keep just to have, as white folks like to have horses and cows just to be there. We like to utilize
0: everything. So our sheep, we eat it. The wool, we use it to create rugs. Through the years, the impact on her family's health has been extensive, And devastating.
1: We have had cancers, respiratory illnesses, we've had some people pass away from respiratory illnesses, pulmonary fibrosis, COPD. So basically these people who have passed away from respiratory illnesses, we had to watch them suffocate to death and it was very traumatic, and it's something that we have to live and endure just because it's almost a norm here because of the radiation and the impact that the dust and the water and the land has done to our bodies, done to our community. You know, you hate to say it, but it's kind of just like environmental racism where our community is somewhat seen as expendable. You hate to say it and you hate to feel that way, but that's how it feels for our entire community that we are the expendable people because it took so long
0: for anybody to acknowledge what was going on here. Teresita Kiana. Anna Benali also lived and still lives in Redwater Pond Road community. She was 20 at the time of the disaster.
6: My dad was taking me to work, and as we were passing the dam, it was all broke. You know, it had already gone down. We didn't even think about it. I don't remember seeing any media or whatever around there. It was just like a daily thing for us. We were never really taught about radiation. We were never really taught about damages that uranium can do. So with us, you know, it was just water, muddy water going down the road. But little did we know, you know, it was highly contaminated and the risk of health that was going to
0: occur. Anna Benelli also had harsh words for Navajo Nation's response. You did say that the Navajo tribe did not try to find out about what had happened with the water. I don't think they
6: ever really knew what they were working with or how bad the toxic or how bad uranium was going to be, even to this day. I believe that the, the Napao tribe doesn't want to take the responsibility of helping people out on the reservation because we have over 500 abandoned mines on the reservation. And when you try to bring it to their attention, they put their ears on mute. They don't have to hear the tragic stories that we have gone through. And, and I believe each and every one of us on the Napao Resolution have gone through this tragedy of losing someone close, friends, relatives to cancer, In respiratory, renal failures, liver failures, newborns, babies. Santa, if you get into positive radiation contamination, you, you carry that gene with you forever and ever. So I don't know how long we'll be living on the Naval Reservation. And slowly we're all there,
0: are killing us off. Anna Benelli of Redwater Pond Road Community. The next day, I was taken around Navajo Nation by Percy Byron Anderson, who works as a contractor with Conservation Voters New Mexico and is vice chair of a local Navajo Nation chapters community land use planning committee. Newly elected Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez was on an annual run with a youth group to raise awareness of health issues on the reservation. I caught up with him at one of the water stops to ask about Navajo Nation starting a health initiative to collect data on the people who lived along the Perko River and were hardest hit by the radiation from the uranium spill. This is an issue that was mentioned to me by several of my interviewees. Being a skilled politician, President Nez ducked a direct answer to my question both times I asked it, but regarding the commemoration, Of the uranium tailing spill 40 years ago, he did say,
7: The annual walk is this Saturday, and then the film festival will be on Sunday, which I will be attending to support the the community and our organizations who are holding the federal government accountable.
0: He later repeated,
7: Most definitely I'll be there for the film festival on Sunday.
0: Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez. A reminder that this interview is from 2019. President Nez's more recent response to COVID-19 is a subject for another time. A short time later, again thanks to Percy Anderson, I attended a meeting between the Governor of New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham, and local Gallup business leaders, The governor's staff and security stopped my attempt to get a quote from her about the proposed Holtec interim storage facility near Carlsbad, which she strongly opposes. One aide, Victor Reyes, promised he'd get my card and request to her communications director so that she could contact me for a quote, which has not yet happened. But I did meet State Senator George Munoz, who represents Gallup, and he was quite concerned.
8: My wife worked out there, at your truck elementary, right? And she's a firm believer that there's something with the water out there and it's affecting the kids.
0: And having failed to get a quote from the governor on the proposed Holtec so-called interim storage site near Carlsbad, I couldn't resist asking Senator Munoz about it.
8: Why does New Mexico always have to be the dumping grounds? Those are shallow mines with the underground storage already there, right? And then we got fracking and oil production down there. And to drill those shallow shafts like that's crazy.
0: New Mexico State Senator George Munoz from Gallup. We will continue with our special encore presentation of the Church Rock 40th Anniversary Program in just a moment. But first, we're in the busy season now for nuclear information hitting the media. 75th anniversary of the Trinity A-bomb test, and then the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Fasten your seatbelts, because the orgy of American self-congratulations is about to hit. Voices for peace and against nuclear in all its many forms tend to get drowned out by the industry's well-financed PR machine, which has been planning and testing its 75th anniversary talking points for more than a year. They are counting on reporters being undereducated on the finer points of nuclear opposition and on financially stressed news organizations picking up their slick pro-nuclear articles, videos, and the like without a critical thought as to content. That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat to cut through all the pro-nuke propaganda that's about to swamp the mainstream media for more than nine years, week after week. Nuclear Hot Seat provides a different perspective on nuclear, one that contradicts the deadly triple drumbeat of nuclear war, nuclear reactors, and a cavalier attitude towards radioactive waste. Would that we here at Nuclear Hot Seat had a nuclear industry-sized budget to fund the work, but this program gets by every month on what nuclear lobbyists probably spend on a single business lunch. That's why we need your help especially in these COVID times. We make it easy to donate. Just go to nuclearhotseat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can now make a donation of any size and easily set it up as a monthly recurring donation. As little as $5 a month, the same as a cup of coffee here in the States, is the lifeline that will keep us going. So please, do what you can. And know that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you are listening and that you care. And now back to this special Encore presentation of the Church Rock Uranium Tailings Spill 40th Anniversary Program. On Saturday, July 13, the 40th anniversary commemoration of the Church Rock Uranium Tailings Spill started at 6.30 in the morning. We gathered in the large community arbor meeting space of the Redwater Pond Road community, local community members as well as those from around the country and supporters from around the world. We began with a traditional Navajo prayer ceremony to bless the land, the water, the air, and the participants of the commemoration. Then we gathered in loose groups behind banners initially carried by many of the young people. They read, Keep Uranium in the Ground, Water is Life, 1979 Uranium Legacy Remembrance and Action Day, and O Duda, which means approximately no uranium mining. There were no chants, drums, songs. This was a solemn march, more than 100 of us. Along the way, I spoke with some of the people there about who they were and why they were there.
7: Hi, my name is Chip Thomas. I'm a family practice physician actually on the western part of the reservation some three hours from here. I've been a family practice doc in the Indian Health Service for the past 32 years and within the past five to six years I started taking care of a cohort of patients who are older men who worked as uranium miners and I've been helping them get recertified to get their benefits from the Department of Labor every six months. And I'm here in support and solidarity with the group of patients, the miners, the former minors that I take care of.
9: My name is Katsumi Furitsu. I came from Japan. And I'm a medical doctor, and I'm really concerned about health effect of radiation. And you know that in Japan, we had the disaster of the nuclear bombing in Hiroshima, Nagasaki. And then now we are suffering from the Fukushima nuclear power plants issue. So I think we have the common problems here in Red Pond Road and over there in Japan. I think we I really want to unite the people to stop all that process from the uranium mining to the nuclear power plants and the bombing.
10: I'm Lon Burnham, I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. I've been involved with nuclear issues since I was an undergraduate a long time ago. I'm here today to be in community with this community and support their struggle. July 16th is a very important anniversary to commemorate. Here is the 40th anniversary. Down south, I'll be in Tularosa next Saturday. They'll be commemorating the 74th anniversary of the initial bombing of citizens of the United States. test Testite.
0: As we marched up the road, I fell into step with Paul Robinson of Southwest Research and Information Center. He explained to me exactly where we were and what we were looking at.
11: There was a dam break that released uh, 400 million liters of fluid pH of 2, like battery acid. And there was also seepage under the dam because it was built on poorly consolidated material, sandstone. And so there's two different kinds of problems at this site. So we're standing on a road that's been rebuilt. It used to be a haul road to the Kermagee mine about a quarter mile north of us. And this whole landscape has been uh, stripped of soil to get to a uh, radium in soil standard. And then covered, and there's some sediment control barriers. So it's part of the remediation of this largest uranium mine in Navajo Nation. And we can see the surface of the covered tailings pile, which is the residue from the mill processing. And uh, that's the location that EPA has proposed the mine waste at Church Rock be moved to. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is doing an environmental impact statement on that proposal.
0: Is that supposed to be part of the cleanup?
11: Yes. The relocation of mine waste to the mill site is considered cleanup of the mine waste site and consolidating waste at the tailing site.
0: We'll hear more on this from Southwest Research and Information Center's Paul Robinson in a moment. When we reached our gathering place, it was shockingly close to where we had started from. I doubt it was as much as a mile away. We gathered on a hill overlooking the site of the 1979 Church Rock uranium tailings pond spill, but without our guides to tell us it was there, no one could know. There was no 3-mile island style cast metal signs posted that explained the disaster, even marking that it had happened. So the marchers had to do it themselves and attached their signs to the flimsy fence that was all that separated us from the mine site. Then Larry J King, serving as MC, began explaining the disaster, where he was and what he experienced, much of what we've covered in our interview. Then Chris Shuey of Southwest Research and Information Center, special guest on Nuclear Hot Seat number 421 from two weeks ago, who discussed the health effects of the Church Rock disaster. Chris addressed the crowd on existing problems on the site. And how United Nuclear Corporation got away with building a less than safe uranium tailings pond? UNC acquired
10: this section two from the state of New Mexico by purchasing it back in 1969 for $29,000. So they made this a piece of private land, and they proposed to build the mill over here and the tailings pile over there. And that was before the effective date of the state's groundwater rules, and so. They didn't have to put any kind of underliners under the ponds. It was a bad site. People like Larry and others photographed cracks in the dam shortly after it began operating in uh, 77. Under state engineer rules, you're not supposed to fill the pond nearer than five feet from the top of the dam, and they were filling it to two feet. It was uh, significant operating error because they were filling it too full, they were not paying attention to the cracks even though they photographed them, and a catastrophic accident happened as a result. This facility would not have been approved, at least theoretically, if the state had waited about three to four weeks to approve the license because then they would have had to comply with the groundwater regulations of the state. And the groundwater regulations may have led the state to conclude that it was a site that was not suitable for the long-term storage and management of uh, uranium mill tailings. It's about 3.5 million tons of tailings. It's a Superfund site designated by EPA back in 83. It remains the largest spill of radioactive waste by volume in U.S. history, and it's going to be the final resting place for another million cubic yards, at least, of mine waste
0: that are on the other side of the mesa at the northeast Church Rock Mine. Chris Shuey of Southwest Research and Information Center. Two representatives of Navajo Nation EPA were on the march, including Executive Director Oliver Whaley, who was pushing a baby stroller uphill as we spoke. But the real surprise was that Sean Hogan, of US EPA Region 9 out of San Francisco, flew in to take part in the March and the Day of Remembrance. Where does the cleanup stand? So there's two
7: projects that we're adjacent to here. The first one is the Northeast Church Rock site, which is mine waste that we're, we currently have our cleanup plan developed for. We have a design completed for, and presently it's with the um, Nuclear Regulatory Committee, NRC, for a review of that cleanup plan. It's an environmental impact statement they're doing presently. Uh, Hopefully it's going to be about two years for them to finish that. And then we have to do another agreement with a responsible company, General Electric, to have the official enforcement document for them to then do the cleanup. So everything's underway. It's just there's a few steps involved.
0: Now, it sounded like from what you said that it's going to be two years of the environmental impact statement being reviewed before it's approved, hopefully it gets approved. And is it going to be only then that the actual physical cleanup starts?
7: That's correct. That comes after the um, NRC completes their review.
0: And if they decide that it needs changes?
7: Well then we'll revisit the design and make changes if they find it's necessary. Hopefully that's not the case, but yes. The design um, was a very rigorous process. You know, NRC, Nickel Regulatory Commission, was involved in the design process, as was Department of Energy, um, as was General Electric, as was this community. They were very much involved. So we feel confident that the design we've come up with is very robust and, and will hold up to the review. But appreciate that the steps that they're taking, because in the end we want everybody to feel super confident that that the cleanup plan that we implement is going to be in place and and solid for, you know, over 1,000 years.
0: Sean Hogan of U.S. EPA Region 9 out of San Francisco. But many Navajo Nation and Redwater Pond community members were critical of the cleanup, let alone the pace at which it is proceeding. Teresita Kiana, Janelle Nez, and Jackie Bell.
5: We're trying to advocate for faster cleanup, We're trying to get EPA to try to get it going. It seems like they delay always. They always come up with excuses for our cleanup. There still needs a lot to be cleaned up. The government's taking their time trying to to clean it up. Clean up the mine faster. It seems like it's taking its time. And it's almost 40 years now.
0: Paul Robinson of Southwest Research and Information Center was critical of the design of the tailings facility. Note that he's talking about this new facility, not the one that breached 40 years ago.
11: The tailings facility doesn't have the liner or tailings containment engineering or construction design elements that would be normal in a uranium mill tailings dam that would meet nuclear regulatory commission criteria in the U.S. or the emerging tailings dam criteria being adopted internationally as a result of the various recent tailings dam spills in British Columbia, Brazil, and other places. So it's a poor design that's already failed once and doesn't meet criteria for a modern facilities, yet GE and EPA are trying to get the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to approve it. So the environmental impact assessment will be the review of that design.
0: Longtime Navajo environmental activist Earl Tully was even more critical of EPA's plans.
3: We want to combine our forces together and begin to talk about how Navajo is going to be taking care of the $84, 85000000 million that has been allocated by EPA to do the cleanup. One of the areas is what is the definition of clean. And then also the other area is is that who's going to be supervising and then who's going to monitor those aspects. Right now we only have one trustee taking care of $84 million, $85 million, 28,000 square miles, 17 million acres, over 500 different sites as far as uranium abandoned sites and different things of that nature. You know, EPA's mentality is basically just going out there just like the mining company did. By that, what I mean is is that they didn't give them the full exposure. People utilize the vehicles to haul wood after their time off. They take it home, and now they have cross-contamination and different things of that nature. EPA has, is in the verge of hiring uh, Tetra Tetratech Tetra Tech basically did a bad job over in San Francisco, Hunter's Point, where they doctored data. If they were manufacturing data for the Department of Navy, what is Navajo Nation? You know, who are they that they cannot do that to?
0: Earl Tully. The issues of the cleanup, relocation, and disposal of contaminated materials are too complex to examine in depth in this episode. But they will be a focus for a future episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. On the way back to the arbor, I spoke with more of the people who had come to join in this commemorative march and offer their support and solidarity to Navajo Nation.
9: Kyoko Sato, I'm originally from Japan. Tokyo, but right now I'm based in San Francisco, California. I'm here because I wanted to learn about the experience of these people here. Um, I study nuclear politics and the history. Originally, it became my interest after the Fukushima nuclear disaster. I grew up in Tokyo, and then I didn't know anything about Fukushima supplying uh, energy. And then the disaster was such a shock for me. So from there, I started looking into the history of nuclear technology and started going to places like Hiroshima Nagasaki, Three Mile Island, Hanford site to understand. You can learn about uh, official explanations of why things are there, what happened, but I also wanted to learn more about uh, local people's experience. So here, I actually learned about Church Rock. I've heard of it, the spill, but I didn't know how big, how terrible this was. Then I learned about this when I attended the commemoration of the 40th anniversary of the Three Mile Island and some of the people there like you, Levigi or uh, Noma, uh, the, the, those people talked about, do you know about Church Rock? So I looked into it and then realized, oh my God, this was a serious disaster that hasn't been talked about or addressed. So here I am trying to learn more about what happened, how people have lived here, what's going on right now.
12: I'm Yasushi Uchiyamada from Japan. I'm anthropologist. I've been working on uh, the issue of this post-Fukushima nuclear power plant accidents. Um, formerly doing research in untouchables in South India, but after this Fukushima accident, I thought it's um, so important to uh, see how this. Um, there's a lack of information. We didn't know what's really happening. People did not have much say about what to do. So I started my research on people's knowledge about nuclear issues and what kind of information were available. I found there was a link between other places, like La Argue in France. Uh, there's a used fuel reprocessing plant where Japanese uh, used fuels were transported. And then I thought there's more linkages between those places. And then I found there's... Was this was uh, where this, uh, um, the first uh, nuclear bomb was, um, no, no, the, the process of, of producing the first nuclear uh, bomb, uh, uh, no, it's an atomic bomb. So the problem is that we were very much divided, but uh, I thought it, it would be nice if uh, the people share the limited knowledge, so that's why I'm here.
0: Sunny Dooley is a traditional Navajo storyteller, and she had this to say.
13: Our elders that are in their 70s and in their 80s, of course, have all passed on because of what uranium and nuclear uh, sources do to every life form. I'm talking about the microbes and the little cells that exist in the earth all the way up to birds, animals, reptiles and insects and eventually humans. Recognizing the devastating effects of this particular form of energy must be absolutely recognized and we can no longer live thinking that it's okay. I see the Devastation in my communities all across New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Colorado, where the Navajo Nation sits. There are 300,000 Navajo people, and I would say a huge chunk of them have been affected by the after effects of this particular spill, but also from the unremediated uranium mines that number in the 500s across the Navajo Nation. Attempts are being made to remediate them. And at the same time, as Diné Navajo people, we are also recognizing that we need to be healed. Not just the five-fingered human types of healing, but we've got to heal the earth, we've got to heal the waters, we've got to heal the air, and we've got to heal one another so that the next 70-year legacy is going to be sustainable
0: and strong. Back at the arbor where we caught our breath, booths had been set up for various Navajo Nation organizations dealing with the cleanup, health issues, and ongoing political issues. The crowd milled around, talking with group reps, taking flyers, signing petitions, buying T-shirts. Speakers at the podium addressed the crowd. The food was plentiful, delicious, and often traditional. The health service's Think Zinc program offered samples of blue corn mush prepared traditionally with juniper ashes, which makes it naturally high in zinc and may help prevent or lessen the effects of autoimmune diseases, slow growth in children, and cognitive function. Unlike most public events I've attended, there was no incessant background music playing. No raised voices, except for the occasional squeal of children playing or an infant briefly squalling. Alcohol is not allowed to be sold on Navajo Nation, so this was a sober gathering as well. In the Booth area, I spoke with other activists—
8: my name is Jonathan Perry with the Eastern Navajo Diné Against Uranium Mining, in Dom, out of Crown Point, New Mexico. We're focused on uh, opposing new development projects within the Four Corners area, mostly emphasizing uh, Crown Point and Church Rock. We've been opposing the Insulich mining method uh, there in the area, so we're focused on protecting our groundwater and also supporting uh, organizations that put an emphasis on cleanup, abandoned sites and contaminated areas across Navajo Nation. Right now, the greatest risk in terms of opposing new mining is the misunderstanding that nuclear energy is green energy, the misunderstanding that nuclear energy is safe, because uranium mining is the front end, and so communities like Crown Point and Church Rock end up with the projects being developed within their areas, and we end up having to deal with contaminated sites, contaminated water, and a lot of health issues as well, and so that's a driving force behind Indom and why we're opposing not only uranium mining, but the entire nuclear fuel
14: chain. I'm here from Atlanta, Georgia. I learned about this through Nuclear Watch South, an organization in the southeast, uh, headquartered in Atlanta that is working against the new Vogel nuclear power plant. And through them, I learned about this whole event. People are
3: sick and tired of being sick and tired. In that context, that recently, as much as two weeks ago, we buried somebody that, that had cancer. And it just almost seems like it's a common thread now during the vietnam war you have people coming home and they were dying they were casualties of war and the casualties of war is still here today and that is through the nuclear aspect of it
0: this was a rare opportunity to catch up in person with other activists author filmmaker and professor heidi hotner came in from new york we'd last seen each other at the 3 mile island 40th anniversary commemoration in middletown pennsylvania Heidi is making both a film and a book about the Three Mile Island accident called Accidents Can Happen. Leona Morgan, a constant and consistent nuclear opponent, was there from the Nuclear Issues Study Group in Albuquerque and Hall No, which opposes the transport of highly radioactive nuclear waste to the proposed Holtec so-called interim storage facility near Carlsbad. Here's what she had to say.
15: And I just want to say thank you to the community who has been fighting to get cleanup and raising the issue pretty much on their own as a grassroots organization. And they've received a lot of support and help from different NGOs. And if it's election year, as they say, that's when the politicians come out. But it's really the work of grassroots people. So I just want to point out that we're here together people from Japan, folks from uh, the Southeast, we have people coming in from all over the Southwest, and some folks from New York and California, and I know there's people all over the world that are also in solidarity with us, and I think it's important for folks to remember that New Mexico really is ground zero for the nuclear industry, from the Trinity site explosion that happened on July 16, 1945, to the spill that happened on July 16, in 1979, and right now the biggest fight we have is stopping the proposed temporary storage of high-level radioactive waste in New Mexico. And so I would just ask folks who live near reactors in the United States to talk to their officials about figuring out what to do with the waste and keeping it as close as possible to where the waste was generated for as long as possible until we find a viable solution permanently for what to do with this stuff. It should not go across the country on railroads exposing everyone in between point A and point B. And we do not want it in New Mexico. It's not because it's our backyard. It's because it's our Mother Earth. And we want to protect our Mother
0: Earth as well as our future generations. Leona Morgan. The next day, Sunday, July fourteen the Nuclear Nation Film Festival was held at the Morrow Theatre in Gallup, New Mexico. The festival was the brainchild of journalist Mervyn Tilden. What was it that made you want to put together the Film festival? One
16: of the things that drove me to do this was the fact that I've been very active in the, in the issues with this particular site, but Also, it's been a very good time to educate the communities that surround the site, but going all the way to the international level. And that really involves putting the word out, having public events like the film festival. We had a very good one as well on Earth Day. And we intend to continue this type of public education to let people know what's happening, to let people know what they can do to help, but also to keep the governments involved, the United States government, the state of New Mexico, the Navajo Nation, the city, county, all of them, to keep them aware that we are still here waiting on a correct and humanitarian response from them to come down and fulfill their trust responsibility as representative government entities.
0: The festival featured six films, the Return of Navajo Boy with an epilogue, Tale of a Toxic Nation, From Radioactive Mines to Radioactive Methods, From the Sierra Club, Too Precious to Mine, about the watershed area around the Grand Canyon, Redwater Pond, Grandmother and Grandchildren, and Seventh Southwest Uranium Summit. Between the films, Mervyn offered further information, context, and a way for people to get involved in the issues. His goal was to create an educational environment. So was it educational? Here's what some of the attendees discovered.
14: James Sweeney. One of the most impactful things that I've seen so far was the information about the Gulf War. That was something I really didn't know about was the use of really nuclear weapons in the Gulf War and what they called depleted uranium and the uh, impact not only on coalition soldiers that fought, but also on the native populations and how they got rid of the materials and just buried them in the desert with no measurement as to how that might be affecting people over there. That was very impactful to me. That's the thing I think I remember the most because I knew nothing about it and I thought it was rather shocking.
17: Scott Knightum from Gallup, New Mexico. A few things were new to me about this. A is that people have been talking about this for a long time. It's been going before the United States government, but yet... What's really kind of surprising is the ongoing nature of it, that it's still happening. I knew of one or two kind of regional mines that needed to be reclaimed, but I didn't understand that there was 500 mines, and I didn't understand the blatant disregard for the outcome. This really kind of paints a picture that's definitely much harder to accept and live with. My name is Nancy Hoover, and I live in Maryland. I worked for the National Cancer Institute in Washington, D.C. years and years ago on the acute leukemia floor, 100% death rate. You know, what we knew about uranium was that you were going to get some kind of a blood cancer. I'm very surprised here to find out all the different kinds of cancers and autoimmune diseases that you can get from there. That's what I learned today, and I feel horrific. I mean, I was unaware that this was such a big problem. And as far as I know, the cleanup is monumental. I mean, it's not just a little bit, let's damn something off. You have to put the stuff in lead to get it to really not radiate anymore, and the more it radiates, the more it causes cancers.
0: We will have links up to all of the available films on our website NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 423. By the way, President Nez neither attended the Nuclear Nation film series, nor did he send word that he was going to be absent. When the two days of commemoration were over, I realized that in all the talks I'd had, I had not encountered what I, as a white woman, serial activist, and recovery addict would expect to hear, rage. I asked journalist Mervin Tilden about the lack of expressed anger during the commemoration events. You can't necessarily
16: identify it as rage because it's more tied into who we are as a people. Our, the land is our identity as the net people. We are the earth surface people and it's not necessarily a rage that we feel but a deep inside compelling interest that we have to protect our mother earth, to protect the water, protect the air, to make sure these things are intact, to make sure that the cleanup happens so that the land is restored. For future generations, the rage that if anything could come out of anyone, you're looking at the rage right here. I'm the one that would speak my mind. My elders, being so respectful that they are, have pretty much withheld that. But I'm free. I, I've been given free reign to speak my mind, and w- which I do because of my understanding of the English language. And as a student of law, I know what is involved with every aspect of the whole process from the time of the spill to right now. And it is my concern that allows me to speak that rage, as it were directed at the proper people who are sitting there doing absolutely nothing. And I can say, it's not just the United States government, it's the departments that are involved, the state of New Mexico, the county, but most importantly, I'm the one to go and speak this to my Navajo leaders. And I can talk this way because I am a Navajo citizen as well as a United States citizen. And is that impetus that I can say, this is what you're responsible for. My people are waiting for an answer and you have
0: that responsibility. Journalist Mervyn Tilden. The one other person I asked about rage was Edith Hood. She simply said, that's private and looked away. Here's today's final thought. I have many thoughts after this trip to Church Rock, but here's the primary one. Uranium mining is just the start of the nuclear fuel chain. The end of it is nuclear weapons and an eternity of deadly radioactive waste from nuclear reactors. When concerned citizens talk about nuclear issues and mention the horrors of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, or Fukushima we must add to this dishonor role, church rock. What happened and is still happening to the people of Navajo Nation represents everything you do not want to happen in your community, state, country, planet. That's why we need to unite to stop nuclear in all its forms. Because it's no exaggeration to say that the future of life itself is what's at stake. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 14, 2020. A reminder that next week, we'll look at the other end of the nuclear fuel chain, the atomic bomb, from the perspective of its first test, Trinity, in New Mexico on July 16, 1945. My thanks and gratitude for making my trip to Window Rock possible go to Anna Rondon, Susan Gordon, B. Sargent, Further thanks to the organizers, marchers, and all of those who shared so openly and honestly with me. I have many hours of recorded interviews that there was not time to get on this show, but please understand that every conversation I had enriched my understanding, and I am grateful to you all. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. Just go to nuclearhotseat.com, scroll down for the yellow opt in box and sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the only good place for uranium is to leave it in the ground. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people
3: thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot
1: seat. It's the bomb.